the book writing thing actually came about because my I had a, I had my child, mm. and I think he's never gonna see any of the stuff or read any of the stuff I grew up with. Um, there's nothing here that would make him see himself like a, a reflection of himself. There was there was nothing. That's actually what started me to write a children's um, children's books first. That was the voice of Christine Maslog-Levis, the guest on this episode of The Knowledge Mill. I'm your host, Greg Yoakum. Christine Maslog-Levis is a marketing and communications coordinator for a nonprofit organization, author, ghostwriter, and former journalist. She has previously worked as a TV reporter in the Philippines and a radio broadcaster with SBS in Sydney, where she still occasionally does voiceovers. Several of her stories have landed in the New York Times and Al Jazeera. While working as a broadcast journalist in the Philippines, Christine covered bomb threats, rebel insurgencies, and political rivalries. She finished her master's degree in communication at Nanyang Technological University in Singapore under the ASEAN scholarship. Christine self-published two children's picture books prior to the release of her first young adult novel, The Girl Between Two Worlds, with Anvil Publishing in 2016. Her second book, The Girl Between Light and Dark, and third book, The Search for Adarna, were released by the same publisher in 2018 and 2019, respectively. Christine is represented by Annabelle Barker Literary Agency. She started her Doctor of Philosophy candidature in 2021 with the University of Technology Sydney for creative writing under the Australian Research Training Program, focusing on cultural diversity in children's literature in Australia. Her thesis, entitled The Missing Books in Children's Literature in Australia, an Australian-Filipino author's journey to representation, is a creative and critical work that questions the limited opportunities given to children's and young adult authors from culturally and linguistically diverse communities in the traditional publishing industry in Australia. The thesis argues that culturally and linguistically diverse authors face barrier after barrier, first within their own personal circumstance, then from the wider community, as well as the barriers within traditional publishing houses. For culturally and linguistically diverse authors to have a chance at being represented in the children's and young adult space, big changes are needed from the industry and its adjacent spaces. This episode of The Knowledge Mill was recorded in my office at UTS on September 15th, 2023. Show notes, including links to more information on some of the topics that Christine and I discuss, can be found at theknowledgemill.com slash episode 7. That's episode and the numeral 7. Hello, Christine. Welcome to the program. Hello. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Uh, we're going to jump right in. You are doing a PhD on cultural diversity in children's literature. Yes. Can you please tell us how this came to be? Um pandemic happened uh <laughs> right so i've always actually started thinking about doing a phd but just didn't know how where to start and then during the pandemic um uts did an um uh open day online and so i saw the ad and um i just went in and joined that and that's how i found out about the process of applying for a phd and so when i was creating my proposal i thought okay i want to the first thing I saw was there wasn't a lot of um, fantasy books in Australia for kids that's related that has um, creatures from other cultures. Hmm. So that was my original proposal, actually. Uh, fantasy book for kids with um, Filipino mythological creatures. Yeah, okay. Because um, I've written three YA books, young adult books, um, published uh, by a Philippine publisher. So... It's a series, um, 
the fourth book actually now is with the publisher, which is the last of the series. So I thought something around the mythological creatures I've written before. And so when, when the proposal um, got accepted, that's when I started doing the research. And then I realized, okay, this might not be the thing I want to pursue because mm. while doing the initial research for the topic, I found out a couple of things. I thought maybe I can pivot into something else that I think is more important for me right now. And my supervisor did say, do something passionate because by the second, third year, you're going to want to quit. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm like, okay, something you're really passionate about this, you're going to push. And you know, when you're looking for a reason, you'll find it because this is what you're passionate about. So I ended up pivoting the topic to um, Australian Filipino writers in children's and young adult literature in Australia. Because the initial research I found that um, there was really only one Australian Filipino author in the last like 20 something years. Right. So I looked at the database in Australia and it was, it was just, they were just starting to update the, the um, database on culturally diverse books for children. So there wasn't a lot out there. So I started looking in Australia and then in the last, what, almost three years now, I found five, hmm. five Australian Philippine authors in that area. And I'm like, well, why, why are there only five in the last 21 years when our community, the Australian Filipino community is like the third large station community in Australia? So it was like, okay, well, what's stopping us from writing in this, in this genre? What's stopping the publishing industry from finding us, uh, from publishing us from? Um, and the more I dug into it, the more I found that it's not just a problem in my community. It's a problem for a lot of um, marginalized communities in Australia, especially First Nations, First Nations authors. So it, it kind of ended up from there. I mean, the, I have to focus, just narrow it down to the Australian Filipino community because otherwise I'm, I'm never going <laughs> to... It's too many PhDs. <laughs> yes, it's never going <laughs> to stop. Uh, but the more I looked into it, the more it's like, oh, there's a lot of papers that could be done in this area in the future. Mm. Um, and it's it's been really, I guess, disheartening would be, would be the word I'd use uh, to see how much... Um, I guess barriers, how many barriers there are for for Australian Filipino writers out there to get into into the publishing industry to be traditionally published in Australia. And then and then in my research I discovered you know you, as kids you can't be what you can't see or mm. read. Um, and it's only really just started these five authors only really just started coming out of their the we need diverse books movement came about. So maybe in the last five, six years. And it's been trickling in really slowly. I mean, the publishing industry is very slow. Mm. But um, yeah, so the numbers have been trickling in really slowly over the years. Uh, the funny thing is that when I found, it usually I found one, and then I found two, and then three. And then when I reached around like four or five, I did think like, oh, maybe we have enough to represent the over 300,000 people in Australia. <laughs> oh, maybe five is enough. It's like I had to change my mentality Yeah. because I felt like, oh, we're, we're given a space. Five is okay. And you kind of think, wait, hold on, wait a minute. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's been an interesting journey personally as well 
Yeah. Um, to think like, hey, why did I think that like having five is enough? Why did I think that, or why did I feel that? Mm. I, I kind of have to look at um how I feel about this as well. So yeah, that's how I ended up choosing this topic. Yeah. Okay. How has that informed your your research? Because you got over this, so you felt like, oh, five, five isn't bad. <laughs> uh, and then you thought, wait, no, we, we could do better. We deserve yeah. more. So ha- has that informed your PhD at all or your approach? Yes. Um, I had to think about what I, I wanted to do. So, so the methodology I'm using for, for my thesis is autoethnography, which mm-hmm. in itself is a bit... Um, I guess, contentious space as well in, in academia. Mm-hmm. But um, I had to really reflect on why I wanted to use my own experience first. Because, of course, I could I could start with interviewing the five authors that I know in this space and do that instead, do that methodology for my, for my work. But um, after a lot of introspection and conversations with my supervisors and other PhD students, I'm like, my experience in, in as a published author, as an author trying to get published in Australia in this space has been very, very interesting. And there's a lot of things I learned. Um, so my background is journalism. I'm a trained, like, that's what I graduated with, bachelor's degree in journalism. Mm-hmm. And I used that experience to apply myself in in the fiction writing so like journalism ver- fiction writing very different worlds so i when i first started i learned by going to conferences festivals talking to other writers like learning as much as possible about the writing itself and the industry and how it all worked mm-hmm. so that's i guess my journey as an author is very different from from others where they kind of stumble into it not knowing where to go who to ask for me i looked at it as a project like trying to learn as much as i can mm-hmm. and because of that over the years i've gathered so many so much information about the industry and about the fiction writing and about the stumbling blocks that marginalized authors face or even you know Australian authors face as well so it's it's all those information that I wanted to collate um and so that's why I chose I think autoethnography would be the best place for me to start for mm-hmm. this thesis um having said that I already have a paper in mind for future stuff <laughs> where I could dive deeper into the experiences of the five authors that I've looked at for for these thesis as an example of um, children's authors in the community. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I I kind of have to just I, I again focus on something so that it doesn't end up being such a huge project that's <laughs> overwhelming and never gonna finish. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, but I am very curious about how all these authors ended up where they are right now, um, what the barriers they faced, where are they similar to what I faced as mm-hmm. well. Um, because each author has a different journey. Each each author has a different background. So mm. um, I wanted to know if we had similarities in terms of... Um, and there are some things that are similar uh, based on the stuff that I've, I've already looked at. Uh, for one, um, the, we already have something similar statement when you pitch your story or book. Uh, we already have something similar. It's like 
yeah, token Asian in the next publishing round, right. stuff like that. So in my, um, I guess, attending conference and stuff, talking to other authors from Asia, from, you know, for, from different communities, I'm seeing themes mm. around stuff that's that stopped us or stuff that um that stopped them from being published as well. And and it's the same kind of theme, different levels. And um one of the biggest barriers I saw was uh language. I mean that that would be the biggest language because you're still expected to write in English and if you're a writer from a different country, if you're a writer where your first language is in English, that's that's it. I mean, my my first language is in English. English is actually actually my third right third language. So I grew up um, talking in my dialect, and then I had to talk in the national language in Tagalog in the Philippines, and then English. So that was it. Even until now, when I write, I still find some things really tricky mm. and I'm I'm thinking well if I'm going through that and I've been doing this for a long time in English I can just imagine other writers who want to tell their story and share the story who don't have that same background you know yeah so yeah th- th- there were so many things that I found I'm like <laughs> it kind of very discouraging at one point I was like oh, why am I doing this <laughs> just like, <laughs> let's just stop writing <laughs> That's the, you just keep finding problems, hey, mm, like the, yeah. the more you explore and then you, so you, your PhD then is, is the auto ethnographic study and the auth, the other author stories that that's kind of the next step for you after the PhD. Is that? I'm hoping, yes. Um, yeah. I have reached out to them and I've told them what I'm trying to do. Um, and they're very excited to learn that I'm, I'm starting this because mm. I have, I actually haven't seen any Australian Filipino um, thesis in this area. Mm-hmm. So I've been looking at other um, academic papers and just so far I haven't seen um, autoethnographic auto uh, papers similar to what I'm doing. There are a lot in America for um, American Latin, Latino communities. Mm. Um, but I'm not sure, like in Australia, no one's really done this. So. The authors, I've actually become friends with them mm. because I go to their book launches. Like I talk to them on social media, and um, we kind of started to discuss, like, yeah, why is that? Why aren't there a lot? And it, and like, I noticed one of the authors didn't even say that she's Filipino in her bio. Right. Yeah. So these five, I don't even know if it's just these five because there are like people who don't want to be who don't want to mention their background. Right. Um, maybe, I don't know what the reason is behind that. Um, maybe for fear of, I don't know, being racist uh, racist attacks or maybe mm. anything that commented from other people. You know, like, so it's kind of hard. I mean, if mm. you base it on a database, even the database is, is not that accurate with sure information as well so it's been very it's almost like word of mouth or invest investigative journalism it's like mm. googling someone trying to see if there's any filipino-ness <laughs> and then actually private messaging them and say hey are you filipino <laughs> yeah yeah With, but without tr- because obviously they've made that decision to not publicize yeah um, so, their identity yeah uh, you know that's 
could be invasive or, or could feel like the yeah. attack they're trying to avoid maybe yeah. yeah yeah but it sounds like you've you've found some people that are receptive and it sounds like you almost have like an informal community of practice yes yeah yes um and that's why i want to provide the next stage would be to provide a space for these five authors and and focus on their stories um in-depth, I guess, in-depth in- interviews with mm-hmm. each of them and their author journeys because they all have different backgrounds. I mean, one of them who recently just launched her book is um, actually a doctor. So right. I'm like, well, why are you writing this if you're a doctor? <laughs> She's always wanted to write books. So it's like, yeah, very different journeys for, for mm. each of them. And that would be so interesting to find out how they ended up here. Yeah, absolutely. And that kind of leads me into, because... When we say cultural diversity, uh, that, of course, can have many different interpretations. And as you've been sort of walking me through the work that you're doing and, and uh, liaising with these these authors and building up this community, uh, I guess from your perspective in, in your, your work so far, what, what would break through this barrier? Because is it a, is it a matter of these books needing to find their audience or the books maybe not being written for the right audience. Uh, what, what do you reckon could be the next step? Oh, there's, there's a, several aspects to it. Like in terms of the education, um, the education department's chosen books, the publishing industry's champions. Um, so first thing in itself for the, from the community, um, a lot of us have the similar themes. We grew up being told there's no money in writing, mm-hmm. so don't don't be a writer. Um, so there's a lot of that common themes of like, oh well, there's no money in that. You should do something else. Um, so that in, <laughs> in itself is stopping people yeah. from actually pursuing Going writing. All in yeah, and, yeah, and maybe one day you wake up. You're 40, 45 and thinking, I want to write. And then you start the process really late. Yeah. So that's like one of the barriers. The community itself, it depends on where the priorities are. Arts, from from my experience, arts is not a very big, like, even when I did journalism, my dad was like, you know, there's no money in this, right? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, like, yeah, but I want to do this. So that's like, yeah, fine, okay. It's It's always about where are you going to have a stable income? So mm. that's the priority. So that, that's from the community itself. And then, you know, the publishing industry and um, the other issue is you have no champions in the industry. Um, so people who read, it's from the people who read the manuscript that you've created, if there's a champion for that, if not, it's just going to get in the slush pile. No one's going to read it. Mm-hmm. If, you, if, if the staff in the publishing industry is not culturally diverse, you have no champions already. Mm-hmm. So, no one's going to read it. You're not going to even get through the first gate. Yeah, um, and that's been also one of the discoveries that the um, the research is that where are the diverse editors, where are you know what happens because you know you're not in the room with them. You don't actually know what happens in there, but something happens. Something happens in the publishing industry that's stopping this mm. going up and discovering. We're still very used to the old ways of discovering authors. There mm-hmm. needs to be a new ways of discovering these authors. Sometimes it's a knee-jerk reaction, like Black Lives Movement. Oh, let's get a black writer. Like, yeah. you know, 
it's not really fill quotas yes to yeah. fill quotas um and I, and i did go through the oh we already have something similar i had this conversation with an uh, american korean author in a conference and yeah she was told oh we already have something similar and when she saw the something similar book it wasn't anywhere. <laughs> Not at all. Similar. It was just Asian. That was it. Right. Because it was Asian. And she's like, it was American Chinese and she's American Korean, but they already have an Asian one. So right. therefore the box has been ticked. Mm. So in the publishing industry itself, we don't know what's what's going on. Do, you have, do we have champions in there? And if they have the token Asian editor, it's only one out of how many, you know? Right. And again, that's beyond our control as writers. Mm. So that's that's another aspect. And then, in in schools, um, what kind of books are they providing kids or opening up for kids to read? Because if kids don't have access to it, they don't know what's out there. Like, yeah, um, if they don't train teachers on how to discuss these books so that it's not tokenistic. That's another aspect to it, but mm-hmm. who provides this training for these teachers? Mm-hmm. So it's so many levels um, that it's kind of overwhelming, really, to think about it. Because there is the there are the broader social problems of mm. bias. Yes, if, if it's implicit bias or yeah. explicit bias, yeah, uh, that permeate <laughs> permeate every level of society and yeah. all different industries yes uh and it, it, it could there's different intersections as well about we're, we're talking about uh filipino australian writers but then also female filipino australian yes. writers and now it's there's even more systemic yes. bias yes uh yeah it's it's a system problem hey it's uh yeah it's quite it's, there's been several times in this research where i'm like no i don't want to do this anymore <laughs> It can feel like, well, I think that the work that you're doing is important because at least it's moving things in a positive direction. Uh, whereas to do nothing is to just accept, is to say five is enough. Yes, and yes. And you obviously don't want to do that. So, No, um, I it, that was a really good introspection when I said five is enough. Is that like colonial mentality as well? Like, mm. oh, yeah. We should be lucky. To... Yeah, we should be lucky. <laughs> Let's not... Let's not ask for more in case they pull back to five. Yeah. And now we have nothing. Like, um, yeah, it's, it's, you we're always asking for, for space. Um, it's funny because, um, one of my essays, uh, was accepted for a, 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 a anthology, a Filipino Australian anthology that was published this year. Um, and one of the things that this group, they're called Entrepinize, one of the things they said was, well, they won't give us a seat on the table. Let's make our own table. Mm. So they they created an anthology and call, had a call out for Australian Filipino writers to give them stories, some um, essays of their own um, migrant experience, um, and that was very interesting. Like, oh yeah, we can make just make space for us yeah. ourselves. Um, yeah. I was going to ask you about is self publishing maybe. Um, yeah, that is one of the questions, and that is a uh, one of the subheaders for the thesis. <laughs> and it is, um, it's not like I'm not looking at it. Mm-hmm. I, I, it is something that I'm I'm looking at because one apparently there's a report that came out that uh, self-published authors now make a lot of money if they do it right. Um, mm-hmm. And again, I've researched that because I did self-publish 
two books before I became traditionally published. Mm-hmm. I don't find it hard because I, that's my industry, like journalism, printing, publishing. I, I have that background. Yeah. Um, but I guess my idea is that the publishing industry has gatekeepers, and I want those gatekeepers to acknowledge our existence. Mm-hmm. And it's not it's not that I can't self-publish. I can if I want to. I just want to keep pushing and keep knocking the, on the gate to say, mm. hey, let us in. Yeah. Like, and then when I when I got, get through that, I'm like, yeah, okay, then I'll self-publish the rest. <laughs> it's more... <laughs> now that I'm in, I'll do it my way. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I guess it's more like the acknowledgement that these communities, these communities exist. We have kids try, wanting to see themselves reflected in the books they read. Mm-hmm. Uh, provide that for them. If you're in the publishing industry, why not provide that for these kids? Yeah. So they can see themselves reflected in the pages of the books they read. That's what I was thinking. Uh, and I'm just going off the top of my head here. You're, you're, this is your space. Uh, is that it, it seems like maybe self-publishing or something like it might be that battering ram to bring the gate down. Because if you, my, my undergrad's in economics, so I have a tendency to see things as supply and demand. <laughs> uh, but if you create the the supply and the conditions are right, then the demand can follow. Uh, and But you need the the supply first like there's got to be we see we see a similar thing in in the sport world where there's a lot of women's sport competitions uh popping up and they haven't been there and so the the first generation of the player pool talent is not the highest that it will be uh but you have to start somewhere yeah and so that's what i was thinking is maybe if if self-publishing but as you as you touched on you had that journalism background because if you self-publish you know if you self-publish a book and you don't tell anybody, then did you really publish a yeah. book? So you also have to be social media manager, marketing yes. manager, PR manager. Yes. Uh, not everybody has that diverse. Yes. It's the, see, there's, it costs a lot of money mm. to self-publish and to do all the marketing and all that and the knowledge and the time. So it, um, there is that downside because if, if it's, you're traditionally published, there's a marketing arm, there's a PR arm. Mm-hmm. Um, distribution arm and that you don't have to think about as an author you can just focus on writing Mm. engaging with the readers doing talks and reaching those readers and that's why you want to get through the gates to tap into that exactly to have that i mean i i do know that there are authors that were traditionally published first and then branched out to self-publishing because they just get more money uh, and because they already have a follower Mm -hmm. Um, but if you no one knows you you're new, um, and and that's another thing. It's a bit confusing for me as well because my my books are published in the Philippines. Mm-hmm. My my publisher is from the Philippines, although my books are, you know, you can buy them anywhere around the world. Does that make me uh, an Australian author, or does that make me a, <laughs> right? Am I published author here, or am I a debut author here? Um, mm. It's. Have you found resistance on that front? Um, I've heard myself being marketed as a debut author. Okay. Even after the three published books. Mm-hmm. But here, in the Philippines, I'm a best-selling author. Right. In in Australia, I'm a debut author. So I'm kind of like, well, what does... <laughs> yeah. I, I don't <laughs> understand. Um, so there's that because the industry has to be able to market you. And, and those marketing terms, again that you have to think about. 
and you think as an author you think oh I just need to write and write good books and edit books but no there's a lot of things that comes along with being an author and mm. I wouldn't have discovered that if not for me attending all these conferences and doing the research like seeing this side of the industry yeah it it, it does get quite overwhelming mm, absolutely before we started recording, you mentioned that there is you are working on a book as a component of your yes. your thesis. So you have the auto ethnographic kind of what you might call the, tr the traditional empirical yes. uh, research side of things. But then you're writing this book as a creative component. Could you kind of walk us through? Because that, I feel like that's happening at the intersection of everything you're discussing, right? You're trying yes. to become an established author in Australia, but in a way that acknowledges that you already are an established <laughs> author. Uh so where where does the the book fit in and in, into all of that as well as your thesis? Yeah, it's um, it's a bit. When I first started, I didn't, I kind of think, okay, this is what I want to write about, and then this is the topic of my thesis. How they, how do they connect? How do they intersect? Um, the creative component actually had three um, changes. Uh, the, the initial the initial one that um, I mentioned before before we started recording was the fantasy with the mythological creatures. That was the first first idea. And then I thought, okay, I, I don't want to do this idea. What am I trying to say here? So I, I had to do, dig deeper. And then the, it, it came to another idea, more streamlined. It's like, no, still not. So until I walked the dogs one night and kind of hit me <laughs> while walking the dogs, mm -hmm. I was like, Okay, this is perfect. Um, so the creative component had to tie in with with um, the thesis, the the journey, the barriers of of being of being a, a marginalized author and the effects of it on on readers not not being able to see themselves. So the creative component revolves around um, identity. So this this child's identity, this child's um, what am I if I can't fit in anywhere here mm. um so th the creative component is a uh, realistic middle grade fiction um revolving around this little girl who finds herself in a foster home her migrant parents are dead and so she's like well we moved here because it's greener pasture that's what my parents said but now that they're gone should i still be here Am I Australian or should I just go back to my relatives in the Philippines where I, I have family? Like, so she's grappling with her identity. She's grappling with where she belongs. And there's a lot of things happening in her life. School stuff, home stuff, friends stuff. Um, Universal experiences. Yes, yeah. yes. And But at the heart of it is, is grappling for where... Where does she belong now that her parents are not there to guide her and tell her this is where you belong? Mm -hmm. um, so when I was writing that, uh, I'm like, I, I kind of put myself in it because I'm first generation migrant. So when I came to Australia, it's on my own because, you know, fell in love with an Aussie. Didn't want to bring him there because there was no job there for him. <laughs> so we had to move here. Um, and I'm kind of like, well, I'm on my own. What if this is a kid here with just two parents? Because I'm seeing a lot of that um, migrants coming here, 
parents with a kid. If your parents disappear, then you're a kid. You're on your own. What do you do? Mm. It kind of ended up like that's where it started. Like, how do you see them, yourself in the community you're in if you're just on your own mm. and your parents are not there to tell you, guide you? Yeah. You don't uh, have that connection to... Yeah. 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 Um, so that's how that's how it ended up. And um, the feedback so far is... Like, it's a very sad story. It's like, <laughs> it's a very sad story. But there were, there's a lot of um, stuff there that is partially experienced by my son as well because mm. um, we, we have no family here. Basically, my family's still in the Philippines. So he grew up without cousins here and, mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So there, there were a lot of that identity. And I do ask him every now and do you consider yourself Filipino? It's like, yeah, of course I do. But I don't. Like, why does he say that? Um, right. What is his idea of Filipino? Yes, yeah. yes. Um, which we'll probably have more conversation when he's older. Hmm. Same as your son. <laughs> yeah, that's as you're telling me this, it's it's a, very similar. I'm very proud of, of where I'm from and my, my heritage is an Appalachian. Uh, but my son, uh, he may not. My parents have moved away from where we're from. My sister's about to move away. I'm not sure he would ever go to where I'm from in West Virginia. And so while I will explain to him where I'm from and what it means to me and that he's half Appalachian, I like to call him an Appalachian Australian. Uh, I don't know what that, you know, that that's a thing that he'll say. I'm an Appalachian Australian, but I don't know that it will mean much to him. It yeah. definitely won't mean what I would like it to mean. Yeah. 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 Cause it's like, why, what does it mean more? We have the same food or you eat the same thing or you what like yeah. traits or yeah so it, this grappling with identity kind of thing I'm, I'm i'm trying yeah i wrote it and and trying to look at it from a, a young person's perspective so yeah that was that was very interesting um one amazing thing i did get from this this whole phd experience is um I was able to do a uh, a ten week workshop with an American Filipino author that whose work I really admire. Mm-hmm. So, um, are you able to say who it is? Ah, uh, yes, Erin uh, Entrada Kelly. So, the Newbery mm-hmm. medalist, um, mm-hmm. New York Times bestselling, and I love her books. I wouldn't have had that opportunity because of the cost that comes with with that. So, being able to do this and having that opportunity to, to do that um, 10 week program was really amazing for, not just for the process, for my process, because mm. I don't have fiction writing experience, uh, fiction writing background. I'm, I basically learn everything on the go. Mm-hmm. Um, so having that workshop with her was not only, it didn't only improve the writing, but also gave perspective on the characters I was writing about because she was a, a cultural insider. So she made comments about the relationships between the characters and how familiar it was that, you know, she did this. Um, she's like, you described and let everyone know the the protagonist's identity without mentioning skin color mm. or um features facial features just by what she did and what she said and the stuff that she ate mm. and i'm like didn't even occur to me like you know <laughs> <laughs> but they and, and the relationship between the characters 
and they were like, that's what my kid says. And or uh, that's what I had with my aunt, like all these little things that makes the character authentic. Because that was the, the other thing that um, I saw through the, the research as well. While there are characters that are, you know, Australian, Filipino or Filipino in, in, in some books, they're not really authentic. You could put any race on them and they just really right. nothing that makes them. The stereotypes. Yeah, that, yeah. yeah. This, the Filipino-ness is not really authentic. So that was the other thing that I, I wanted to, because I've read a couple of books and I'm like, you could, this could be any, anyone, any, any mm. race. Mm. Um, it's very stereotypical. It's very, yeah. It's just very. I get pissed off sometimes. So like, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. Well, that was. I started asking you about cultural diversity earlier, and then I sort of pivoted and asked a different question. <laughs> but we've circled back around to the original question I wanted yes. to ask, which is, if we're talking about cultural diversity, specifically in children's books in your pro in your project, uh, what are you? What What are the benefits? of the diversity that you're trying to understand and enhance? Is this for uh, for a Filipino reader to see themselves in the story and maybe understand themselves better and their place in Australia? Is it for an Australian reader who maybe doesn't know any Filipino people and can learn about their culture and what it is to be Filipino-Australian? Uh, all of the above. All of the above. <laughs> <laughs> yes, all of the above. Um, I... The reflection thing is is, is big for for um, Australian Filipino kids, for me because um, when I I've been here twenty years and very rare in the twenty years I've been here that I've read any characters Filipino seen anything and on TV mm-hmm. heard anyone on the radio that like that so I'm thinking I'm I'm a grown adult mm-hmm. and I was just thinking well what would a child's experience be. Um, all these years not seeing themselves represented, and and I think that's that's the main reason. And especially since um, the book writing thing actually came about because my I had a, I had my child, mm. and I think he's never gonna see any of the stuff or read any of the stuff I grew up with. Um, there's nothing here that would make him see himself like a reflection of himself. There was there was nothing. That's actually what started me to write a children's um, children's books first, and then young adult books later on. So he he kind of I blame him. He started it all. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, because of that reflection thing that I I thought he, he should you know see these things, read read these things, and then the other thing is. The constant explanation as well, like what's a Filipino? Like you know, we're known for Imelda's shoes. I'm like, really? <laughs> um, and that's also part of it. They it would it would provide other people with, uh, you know, a, a window to Filipinoness. Yeah. Um, so a more nuanced view than just the stereotypical. Exactly. Yeah. So um, when I was interviewed about my young adult books. Um, after a couple of them, the, the second and third book came out, um, I was asked, like, so why did you write this book this way? Because my young adult books, they're Filipino monsters in America. 
And a lot of the readers said, no one's ever done this before. Mm. Because it's always the Filipino monsters, you see them in the Philippines only, in the cinemas there, in, in the books there, in the comics there. But no one's taken out these monsters outside of the Philippines. So I put them in America. I made them eat Americans. <laughs> <laughs> and And they were like, so why did you do this? And I'm like... Because over the years, all I've seen are, are mythological creatures or monsters from from Western countries. Mm-hmm. Your vampires and your werewolves and all that stuff. And I'm thinking, our monsters are pretty horrible. And if they look like humans during the day, they can migrate anywhere in the world. Mm. So why can't there be, you know, a migrant applying for a U.S. visa? Then when he, when he or she gets to the U.S., starts eating people there. <laughs> What's stopping that, right? Yeah. In a global community. That's kind of how it started in my head. And I'm like, that's introducing this. That's why the first idea for the creative work was mythological creatures. So I wanted to bring that, um, that fantasy side into books around the world for mm. mythological creatures from the Philippines. So yeah, it, there's so much, um, I guess, the culture side. There's a lot of stuff that other cultures would find surprising or entertaining or scared the pants out of them, yeah. really. Um, so it's it's stuff like, well, why not, you know? Mm. Why not bring it out there? Yeah, absolutely. Well, you can learn so much about uh, other cultures, other people, by the, their extreme, you know, what makes you fall in love what makes you afraid <laughs> like the extreme emotions i think and how people react in those scenarios exactly says a lot about them yeah 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 that's quite bit so you're actually then expanding the uh the whole app because you mentioned dracula and you know that's we, we take for granted that dracula dracula is not american you know <laughs> uh but so there is a, a precedent for monsters, quote unquote, to come from foreign lands. Uh, we should expand our our view, you know, find other monsters and cryptids and yeah, uh, yeah, mythological creatures. Yeah. So when I started reading um, young adult books and children's books, I found there was this one series I read, um, children's book where one of the monsters was so similar to ours. And I had to stop. And I'm like, oh, my God. I can't believe I'm reading a monster that is very similar. And I found out the author is, like, Australian-Indonesian, I think. Okay. Um, And I'm like, oh, my God. And so I actually Googled it. (laughs) And so there's, like, a lot of similarities in the monsters. And I was so surprised. And... Because I've been reading books for a long time. So it's the first time I've actually read mm. a monster that's not, you know, this the common monsters you, you read about. And I was like, oh, maybe this is the time. Mm. Maybe this is the right time to bring all that yeah. to light. Yeah. Other people could be having that same experience you had as a reader. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's brilliant. It only took 40-something years. <laughs> <laughs> But that's, you know, that's a, another thing that we were saying before we started recording is just how you follow your passions and, and then... You end up there. You end up there, yeah. Uh, and sometimes you... A thing that I find myself saying often, and I, I wanted to say it earlier in this conversation, uh, is that you don't know what you don't know. 
Mm-hmm. And it's it's a spin on if you can't, you know, if you can see it, you can be it. It's almost like the the reverse of that. It's a well, if you don't know you can, yes, be it, then you don't even know to try to see it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, and so, I, and it's the whole supply side thing as well, where it has to be there, and and then the well, getting people's eyeballs on it. That's a whole different ball game but that's what you're that's where you come in as well with the publishing yeah because the, um, the industry previously believed that you know marginalized communities don't read books mm. so that's why it's like oh no, no there's no there's no audience for that there are no readers for that there are no audience for that but um now we find yes there yeah there's an yeah. audience for that yeah absolutely and what a terrible and reductive view anyway <laughs> in the first place to just write off entire populations of people is who don't read yeah how insulting. I know, I know. And it's. I was actually quite surprised when I started reading um, all these papers and all these reports and all these articles. I'm like, and I, I, I never really followed it before I started my thesis. In my head, when I started writing fiction, was just to write fiction. Because that's just what authors do. They just write. Mm-hmm. Then get published, and that's it. So that was, <laughs> it's easy. Yeah, super easy. <laughs> that's all I did. I didn't even focus on like all these diversity issues all the, in the industry. And then when I started reading all these papers and reports, and not just in Australia but in the UK and in the US, I'm like, oh my god. And I was so disheartened. I'm like, then why am I doing this? Why am I writing when there's like so little chance of me? getting there or mm. getting published um basically the popular authors lightning in a bottle kind of thing right so then you have to actually go back to the purpose why you're doing the thesis go back to it and say well this is gonna be a brick to that foundation that's it mm-hmm. so i had to change my mentality about what I'm trying to do. Yeah. So that I could keep going and I collapse and say, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to go home. <laughs> I said, this, I'm just, this is just a brick. Yeah. And, and other people will start creating these bricks. And eventually, maybe when I'm dead, mm. this, this is going to be a full house. But if you don't put your brick down, then there's not a place for the next person. And Exactly. Yep. Exactly. So let's just have this brick. Another person can see this in the future. And build on it, and we'll just keep building and building and building. Mm-hmm. So I had to um, destroy my delusions. <laughs> <laughs> the delusions in my head, I had to like compact it. Mm. Um, Do you feel better about things now, though, with your new attitude? Um, yeah, it's more bite-sized, mm-hmm. I guess. Um, you know, you can do anything if you just bite at me. How do you eat an elephant? You know, yeah, one yeah. bite at a time. So yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. So I kind of had to just push it back. It's like, look, this is it. Just a break. Just a break. Mm-hmm. And I, I do feel a lot better. Um, I still, I enjoy writing more now that there's no bigger, super huge, yeah, purpose. Um, just going back to storytelling and seeing the process as that enjoyable process again and not thinking about all these what will it mean like repercussions and grand things nothing like that so mm. yeah just the immediate impact yeah, yeah. having said that though the uh, the books i've been writing 
because I did finish two other books aside from the creative component. Um, I'm starting to think about things differently. Like, okay, I'm writing this story. What am I trying to say about this? Mm-hmm. Or how would this help? It's not just like telling, telling stories for telling stories' sake. Um, which makes, I guess, makes, makes it more introspective than, than normal. I thought when I first started that, oh, you just write stories because it's fun, mm. you know? Um, after, after going through this whole PhD process, you kind of start to think about, oh, what is this character trying to say? Or what is this story trying to say? Mm. So, yeah, it, I'm starting to look at things quite... You've really got the the philosophical side of I Doctor know, of Philosophy. This sucks so much. <laughs> it sucks so much. <laughs> well, that sort of brings us back around to the PhD itself. So you mentioned that you are here at UTS. We have a three stage framework. Uh, stage one confirms the candidature. Stage two, stage two in the business school confirms your readiness to collect data. But it sounds like you've already. You have now done stage two, you mentioned before we yes. started recording. So I'm waiting uh, for stage three. Yeah. So what's the what's the timeline? What's happening on the, the home stretch here? How are you feeling about things? <laughs> I was telling my son the other day, it's like I wanna do this I wanna get this done already, I wanna finish. I don't wanna do this anymore. <laughs> <laughs> it's like my son's like fourteen and it's like I'm still in high school, mom. Like <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um it it does feel like things are starting to wrap up, um, mm-hmm. but like you said previously as well, wrap up. But there's like so many things to wrap up and so yeah. many endings. Um, and if and I haven't done a PhD before, so I don't really know what to expect afterwards. Mm-hmm. So I just have all these questions about. Okay, after I finish this, then what after that? Yeah. So right now. Um, yeah, I'm just getting the feedback from stage two and incorporating the feedback into the the thesis. And mm. um, I got really good feedback from my stage two assessment, so that was really good. Brilliant. So, yeah, I'm just trying to put that together. And then I'm waiting for feedback on the creative component. Mm-hmm. And after that, I'm going to edit, edit the novel. And hopefully my agent will like it and we will... Get it published before I finish my PhD. Well, that's the dream. Yeah, anyway. nice one. Is that is that a? Uh, do you need to publish it before you finish? Or no, is, not really. It's just your personal. It's a personal goal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, nice one. But then I also thinking that if if it, if that happens, then I'll have to change my thesis because you have to yeah. add. To, oh right. Yeah, because it's all ethnography. You kind of have to add what happens to. Yeah, of course. The creative work. It's like, hmm. But yeah, that that's kind of is the dream up. Oh, Having that mentor as well for for the creative component is a it's a huge help. This is separate to your PhD supervisors. Yes, separate yeah. to. Because being a, see, I didn't know that being a PhD student, get, you get all these things that you don't know that you get until you ask. Yeah. And then, which I wouldn't have had been access to or been able to do mm-hmm. had I not done this. So yeah, that's been very very helpful and very exciting. Mm. Mm. It's and it's as well. I had my my stage three experience was similar, where it just felt like I was 
there were 30 fire hoses blasting me at once and it also coincided with the beginning of the pandemic so it was uh, oh. I finished I submitted my thesis at the end of June 2020 <laughs> oh wow uh, so a lot was happening and I was trying to publish articles at the same time but I had this simultaneous feeling of this is awful and I want all of this to stop but also enjoy this yes <laughs> I, you only get to do exactly what you want to do this one time if you're an academic uh to just research whatever you want and to get access to the the workshop that you were able to go to and to go to these conferences and to just live in your own thoughts yes yeah exactly um and then i realized as well which is one of the things my supervisor said you know that when you read books that's part of your <laughs> that's PhD. work i'm like <laughs> what <laughs> because this is your topic and if you read that that's I'm like yeah. that is amazing. <laughs> That's what I tried to tell my wife about watching the footy because I was oh, doing really? I was doing uh, sport management. It's like, well, you know, this is technically this work. Is work. Yes, <laughs> I don't think she was buying it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, so what's the uh, when are you looking at submitting then? Oh my god! What if I tell you I'm, I might jinx it? Okay, fair enough. Well, or if you want to put the deadline out there and then everyone's going <laughs> to hold no. you accountable. No, if my supervisor's here, it's like, hmm, I'm not sure. Sounds like you said it was going to be then. Yes, and then you're not following through. Uh, there is a plan. There's mm -hmm. a plan in place. I've spoken to my supervisors, and that's the plan we're going to, that's the goal we're going to set. Yep. Um, it looks like it's doable at the moment because mm -hmm. um, I still have that uh, journalism ethics where you have a buffer time so you're not doing things the last minute mm -hmm. you're i'm quite deadline driven yeah so i've set deadlines for myself to think okay we need to do this by this and um it looks like we're on track knock on, on track. wood yeah, if you nice. jinx it i blame you <laughs> well, i won't say any more then because <laughs> uh, I, I don't want to be responsible for a jinx <laughs> yes um well so other than the phd you mentioned that you've been to some conferences. Is there anything else on the horizon? You, you noted that you wanted to, to maybe uh, pursue some work with the other authors that you had contacted. What's on the, the horizon for you beyond the PhD? Uh, it's blank at the moment. Mm -hmm. I don't really know. I mean, well, the certain thing is I'm not going to stop writing. Mm -hmm. I, I love the process. I love writing. Um, I actually have a couple of manuscripts that is waiting to be edited mm. because I'm doing the PhD. Everything's kind of just, it's yeah. been on a, f what, three, four year hold. <laughs> <laughs> it's been on hold for, for a long time. The um, back burner has quite a few parts on it now. Yeah. Yeah. yeah <laughs> uh, I'm not looking forward to that, but I did submit the fourth book in my, in my series with my publishers. So nice. I'm waiting to hear back from them on that one. And I think that would need to be edited. And then the creative component would need to be edited. So there's a lot of editing in my horizon. Right. Yeah. Um, and then I don't know, professional, professionally, I'm not really sure where I'm mm. going to end up. Yeah, because you mentioned you, you don't necessarily think you want to be an academic. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not really sure because I don't yeah. know. I've asked a lot of academics and yeah. it. I think it depends what time of day you asked them about. Could be true, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what it's like to be one and i'm kind of like okay how hard is it sometimes it depends on the person yes mm. uh, and it depends on the department you ask what i'm trying to weigh in um yeah what the future is going to be like but having said that i normally just go with the flow mm -hmm. because that's what's happened with my 
master's degree with the PhD, mm-hmm. kind of going through the path and see what yeah. happens. Got you this far. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Have you done any, uh, through your PhD, any teaching or anything like that? Um, I've done a couple of workshops. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking, yeah, my supervisor had mentioned that we could start trying the teaching thing. Mm. Um, because that can be eye-opening in yeah, terms of, yeah. do I want to do this? Yes, exactly. That's what she said. <laughs> she said, try it out. And some people just like it. Some people don't. Mm. So, like I mentioned before, I'm an introverted with an expiration, extroverted with an expiration. Yes. So, it <laughs> It really depends. Yeah, but yeah, that that might be an interesting experience. Yeah, maybe while you're waiting on the the thesis to come yes. back from the examiners. Yes, uh, that's how you could. Pass if it the doesn't time kill me, right? <laughs> it well, it didn't kill you, so that's fine. Yeah, yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> the last question that I ask everybody, and I'm realizing now that I forgot to warn you about this, so, uh, but probably you'll have an answer for me anyway. Is what is something outside of all of this, the PhD, the research, maybe even in your case, your professional practice, since that's an extension, that gets you out of bed in the morning that you're excited about? Um, wait, family, aside from family? Oh, it could be family. Yeah, sure. This K-drama count? <laughs> <laughs> You'll have to give me a lot of background and context there because that's... <laughs> you don't <laughs> know sure. Korean drama? I don't. <laughs> oh, my God. You need to start. Uh, I do love Korean films. Yes. Uh, yeah. Korean drama. You need to start that. Mm. Um, I actually do love my work. Um, so I, I work part-time as a marketing and communications um, coordinator mm-hmm. for a nonprofit. So I love that side. Mm-hmm. I actually love writing. And yes, it's really hard, but I do like what I'm doing with a PhD. Mm-hmm. I think I've come to a point in my life where I only do things I like. I was like, I'm too old for that. So, <laughs> so find something that you actually like doing. Yeah. So um, I, I don't want to piss people off, but when I wake up in the morning to go to work, I actually like going to work. That's fantastic. And I actually like doing what I'm doing. And then when I do my PhD and, and write about stuff and... Do the creative component. I also do like that. So mm. yeah, um, yeah. I actually enjoy those things in in my life, and I think being able to put them in one. Mm-hmm. If I find a job where I can put all these components into one, that would be fantastic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it, it brings us. What's, we keep coming full circle. We're doing very well. <laughs> it brings us full circle to something you said right back when we at the beginning of the episode. Uh, about if you don't like what you're doing, it's going to be a long journey. Yes. But, but here you are at the yes. end, and you're saying that it still drives you to get out of bed in the morning and get at it. So Exactly. I, I think the biggest thing is just not getting enough sleep. I just need <laughs> to get enough sleep, mm. and everything's okay. Yep. And coffee, of course. Yes, 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 of course. Coffee in the morning. And, and yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm pretty okay with what I'm doing. Everything thereafter, you're, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> if you're actually, caffeinated and rested enough, you can handle anything. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I actually have a long post-PhD bucket list that I've started writing last year. Okay. Of what I want to do once I finish the thesis. Yeah. Anything you can tell us? Like some travel or? Learn a new language. Ah. Mm. What are you thinking? Korean. So I don't have to read subtitles. Okay. Fair enough. <laughs> 
Well, that's an important because I've thought this before about literature that I've my, my favorite writer, if I if I had to pick only one, would be Albert Camus, and it occurs to me that reading him in translation is it's not a very different experience. Yeah, yeah. is not yeah. actually reading him, and so I have this motivation to learn French to if I could well, why if, not? read Camus in his native tongue uh, at some point in my life. That would be. <laughs> Tomorrow, but it, start it's tomorrow. relevant to what you were saying about uh, these. Well, if, if uh, your books, your your Filipino books, are even translated to English, does that capture the the nuance? No, they're actually of... written in English. Oh, they're written in English. Oh, okay. yeah, I misunderstood. Yeah, that's that was one of the things that a lot of people think because my publisher's in the Philippines. Mm. I've been asked that question a lot. Right, like is it in English or isn't? No, it's in yeah. English. I cannot write in proper Tagalog for the life of me. Okay. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, so it's it's all in English. That's why I guess it was easy to market to Filipinos outside the Philippines as well. Because mm. it was in English. And that was the whole point of it, is I wanted to reach Filipinos who grew up somewhere else. Mm-hmm. So they can read about their culture, even though they can't speak the Galog or right. their mom's or their parents' dialect. Mm. So, yeah, that was the whole point of that, so... So you're kind of coming just right in that uh, a business person, a manager would call it a gap in the market. <laughs> yes. <laughs> but it's, it's a little more philosophical than that. Uh, but that's that's brilliant because, like like we were saying before, if you don't have that, uh, if if you don't speak the mother tongue, uh, and there's nuance to those languages. Uh, I mean, even I, I joked when I first moved to Australia that I was still learning Australian. <laughs> uh, and sometimes I do still, when I'm talking to my family back home, I'll drop in some colloquialism. Yes. And they'll be like, what now? What? <laughs> uh, but for me, it makes perfect sense. Uh, but that language, of course, is a huge part of culture and, yes. and identity and, and being able to express those things. And so that's interesting that, yeah, you were able to come to kids and others in a language that is their mother tongue, yes. But telling them about their culture, I think that's quite that's quite cool. Yes, um, with a spattering of of Bisaya, which is my dialect. So mm-hmm. um, I made that conscious decision instead of using Tagalog because I do love putting Bisaya there because I grew up thinking I grew up thinking that Bisaya is inferior and inferior language because that was instilled in us. We if you're if you speak Bisaya from the provinces, you're not as educated. Okay. Uh, so that was like, when I grew up, that's what we were taught in society. Mm. Um, so now that I'm writing in English, if my characters need to speak Filipino, I, I use Bisaya. Okay. I put Bisaya in there. And I think I'll, uh, there are other writers and singers or Filipinos who use their mother tongue now. Mm-hmm. Like there's that love for language, love for dialect that that wasn't there when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. It's very interesting. Yeah, yeah. That Someone is. should write something about that. <laughs> <laughs> There's another another PhD oh, for God someone yeah. to do. <laughs> someone else. <laughs> Maybe even that. a couple of PhDs. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, we'll wrap it up there. Uh, thank you very much for making the time. This has been really fascinating, and I wish you all all the best as you finish up. Thank you. Off. Thank you for having me.